Our scripture reading this morning is again from the book of 2 Kings. 2 Kings chapter 6. If you have a pew Bible, you'll find this on page 312. We're in our penultimate reading and sermon on the life of Elisha. I'm going to pick up in verse 8 of chapter 6 and read through to the end of verse 23. Once, when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants, saying, At such and such a place shall be my camp. But the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God told him. Thus he used to warn him, so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king. But Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. And he said to him, Go and see where he is that I may send and seize him. It was told him, Behold, he is in Dothan. So he sent there horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, Please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. And Elisha said to them, This is not the way, and this is not the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria. As soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes, and they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. As soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, My father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? He answered, You shall not strike them down. Would you strike down those whom you have taken captive with your sword and with your bow? Set bread and water before them that they may eat and drink and go home to their master. So he prepared for them a great feast. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away and they went to their master. And the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. So we come to reflect on this section of his word for a few moments together. Let's uh, first bow our heads together and pray. Lord, why should we gain from the worthiness of Christ 
We have no answer, but we know that you love us. We know with all our heart that Christ is enough uh, for us, both here today and for eternity. And so, Lord, it is with hearts that want to be tuned toward your grace that we come now to your word, asking that you would speak clearly through it. We, we know that you always do, so enable us to hear clearly through it. We want these words to have, have resonance in our hearts and in our souls and make a difference to us. And we pray that they would, to your honor and to your glory. Amen. In his autobiography, Black and Free, Tom Skinner tells the story of how he came to Christ. In the 1950s, Skinner was the head of a street gang in New York City called the Harlem Lords. And one evening, he was planning strategy for an upcoming gang fight that would have included five rival gangs and some 3,000 members. And while planning to the attack, he half listened to some rock and roll tunes that were on his favorite radio station. Then, out of nowhere, really, his favorite songs were interrupted as an unscheduled gospel program came on the air. And as Tom Skinner listened to the preacher, his heart was warmed, he repented of his sin, and he became a Christian sitting there with his plans before him. Now, what was he to do? Obviously, he couldn't continue with these murderous plans. But on the other hand, uh, he knew that uh, there was only one way to leave the Harlem Lords, and that was through death. Nevertheless, he went to the gang's warehouse and told 129 of the other gang members that he had come to Christ, and then he left, never to be part of the gang again. Later, one of the members that had been there that night saw him and told him that on that night, both he and others had wanted to kill Skinner, but something had held their arms down the entire time Skinner spoke so that they could not harm him. What do you think of this story? Does God work in these ways? Let's dive into our text and really draw out two of the key themes that we find there. Our text opens scene one in verse eight in Syria amidst war and rumors of war. Israel and Syria are fighting again and the king of Syria enters into his war room and receives secret counsel from his closest advisors. And they plan multiple raiding parties into the land of Israel. They'll surprise the Israelite armies and inflict heavy losses. Verses 9 and 10, though, introduce us to a problem, which is that the king can't keep these secret plans a secret. He is unable to keep this information to himself. God reveals each plan to Elisha, who then goes and tells the precise details of each plan to the king of Israel. So time and again, these surprise raids backfire as they show up and find that the town is either empty or worse, armed to the hilt. So in verse 11, the king of Syria understandably gets angry. How is it that these Israelites know what I'm up to? How is it that none of my plans, none of my schemes, none of my strategies are meeting with success? And so he concludes that there's a traitor in his midst. He concludes that there's a mole in his inner circle who's leaking intel to Israel. 
In verse 12, though, his advisors assure him that this is not the case. This isn't the work of an insider, but rather the work of an outsider, Elisha's, Elisha, Israel's prophet. And they say to him, this guy knows everything you say. He even knows what you say in your bedroom. That pillow talk late at night, he passes it all along to the king of Israel. King of Syria doesn't yet realize that you can't do anything without God knowing. Nothing is hidden from the Lord. A somber reminder for each of us as well. In verse 13, though, after getting over the shock of finding out that Elisha has been passing the things he has been whispering to his wife on to the king of Israel, the king of Syria makes a plan. He says, let's find out where Elisha is so I can go and get him. The report comes back that Elisha is in Dothan. Now, this is the Dothan of northern Israel, not the Dothan of southern Alabama. Um, And it's interesting that the king of Syria doesn't stop to think, huh, this guy who knows everything I say in secret might actually know that I'm coming to get him as well. (laughs) Scene two then shifts to Israel. And in verse 14, we get insight into the king's desperation as he deploys a remarkable force to go and get a single man. He sends horses and chariots and, and special forces who surround Dothan in the middle of the night. And there they wait with all their guns trained on Elisha's house. In verse 15, we read that Elisha's servant gets up early, he stretches, he rubs his eyes, and he walks out the front door to be met with this terrifying scene. He runs back indoors to see Elisha in a panic, screaming out, what will we do? He's seen with his own eyes that all is lost, that they have no hope. Verse 16, Elisha comes out, he surveys the scene, he takes a deep breath, He enjoys the morning air as if he doesn't have a care in the world and issues this strange reply. Don't be afraid. There's more of us than there are of them. You can imagine the servant stopping, looking at himself, looking at Elisha. You know, one, two. Yes, okay. There are two of us and there are thousands of them. What are you talking about? How is it that we are going to be safe? Wake up, smell the coffee, we're dead meat. Then verse 17, Elisha prays again. Oh Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. The young servant's eyes are indeed opened and he sees reality. Behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. The splendor of God's heavenly armies has been arrayed around their camp. Angelic fury has been sent to defend them from the aggression of the Syrians. God has deployed his own forces, and it makes the Syrian army look tiny. And that really drives us to the first point, which is a very simple, plain point, and it's this. God looks after his children. God always looks after his children. He provides life-saving intelligence in scene one. He provides a life-saving army in scene two. At every stage, he's watching over his own. Let's take that general point, though, and try work it into our own hearts with a a series of of smaller applications from the text. Uh, First of all, uh, simply this. Uh, When we forget God, our problems overwhelm us. 
When we forget God, our problems overwhelm us. When Elisha's servant beheld the Syrian armies that morning, he was terrified. And so often our lives are the same way. I don't know about you, but how easy we find it to to navigate through life and get caught up in the things of the day and just not really give the Lord a second thought. Not necessarily an intentional act of, of, of rebellion, just a, a forgetfulness, a sinful forgetfulness where we navigate life without him. But then when the enemies of life show up, be they loneliness or financial stress or health problems, we despair And we think, there's no way that this can end well. See how the odds are stacked against me. Is there an area in your life like this just now, something you've been worrying about, something that's had a hold over you, and you're now just realizing that you haven't factored God into this equation? That parenting decision, that financial commitment, that opportunity to relocate. You've left God out of the picture, and so your problem seems as big as the Syrian army seemed to Elisha's servant. When we forget God, our problems overwhelm us. Second smaller application point is this. Yeah, when we forget God, our our problems overwhelm us. But secondly, when we see God, when we remember God, when we see him, we realize very often that everything you long for is already here. Everything you long for is already here. The interaction between Elisha and his servant is fascinating to me. Look in verse 16. First of all, he tells him the truth. Do not be afraid, he says, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. But Elisha doesn't just stop there. He doesn't just tell him the truth. He then goes on to pray that his servant will experience that truth. Verse 17. O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. Understand the breakthrough moment in this text isn't when God sends help. The breakthrough moment in this text is when the servant realizes help is already here. It's not that they prayed that the armies would come and defend them, but that he prayed that his servant would realize they were already there. And how often for us, we don't need, to, we don't need more of anything as much as we need to be reminded of what we already have. We don't need more of anything. We need to be reminded of what we already have, the faith to see what we already have. How does this play out a thousand ways in a thousand days? So think of the woman who pursues sex or success in order to feel accepted. When all along she has been embraced in the full acceptance of a father who loves her. I think of the man who works every hour God sends in order to feel significant when all along the God who loves him has declared and decreed that he is at great value and great dignity. I think of the couple that saves every penny in order to build some security when all along underneath they've had the everlasting arms. I wonder if there's an area of your life and my life where you're striving to take hold of something in the gospel, you already have. When you look at the things that drive you, what is it you're looking for? I invite you to consider this morning whether in the gospel you don't already have hold of those things. When we see God, we realize everything you long for is here. 
Third application point as we build toward our main point is this, that faith often grows in proportion to the trouble that you're in. Faith often grows in proportion to the trouble that you're in. Uh, Think about it this way. If Elisha and his servant hadn't found themselves in this perplexing predicament, they wouldn't have had the opportunity to see God deliver in such a powerful way. And how often the same is true for us. You have that depression that makes you think you won't make it through the day. Yet by grace, the sun rises and the sun sets, and you're hanging tough enough to be here this morning, and slowly your confidence builds that God is enough. The uncertainty, perhaps, that makes you anxious for what the future will hold. Yet, by grace, the sun rises and the sun sets, and that terrible thing never happens, and things keep turning out okay, and little by little, just slowly, inch by inch, your confidence grows that God is enough. Perhaps even that tragedy where you get that diagnosis, so you lose that job or that loved one, and you wonder if you'll be able to carry on. And you find that, yes, by grace, the sun rises and sets, and hope returns, and slowly your confidence builds that God is enough. You can hear about God's faithfulness in depression, in uncertainty, in tragedy, and you can believe what people say, but it will never have the same hold on you until you've experienced it yourself. And so you'll get believers who will, with fire in their eyes, tell you, I sunk so low I thought I wasn't going to make it, but God didn't let me down. And I got so anxious that I thought I was going crazy, but God didn't let me down. And I still cry every day because I miss them so much, but God hasn't let me down. Faith often grows in proportion to the trouble that you're in. Now, why do I say this? Not so that we'd all go seeking trouble, okay? Um, In life, the trouble comes. I say this as an encouragement if you're already there. Whatever struggle you find yourself in this morning, pray for the faith, the eyes to see, and you will know that your God is enough. He will not let you down. Builds us to our fourth application point. God knows what he's doing. You can trust him in trouble. God knows what he's doing. You can trust him in trouble. All looked lost from the servant's perspective, but God came through. Now, I don't know, perhaps you're saying, sure. But it was kind of easy for the servant. He had a moment's doubt and then immediate delivery. I've been struggling with this situation for years and the chariots still haven't come. I want you to know, first of all, that um, it's okay to talk about those doubts and it's okay to talk about those fears. Here in McLean, we're not trying to train ourselves to give the right answer. We're genuinely seeking to apply the gospel into our hearts that we might know the Lord more. We all have things in our life that we feel this way about. Why can't you find a job? Why isn't your spouse kinder? Why did you get cancer? Why did that loved one die? In response, let me tell you about another story that took place at Dothan. Centuries before, do you remember that Joseph was in Dothan? 
Genesis 37, it was there in Dothan that his brothers threw him into a pit before selling him into slavery and telling everyone that he was dead. And like Elisha before him, Joseph cried out for help. And what happened? He was thrown into a pit. He was sold into slavery and everyone was told that he was dead. What do we conclude? That the chariots came for Elisha, but they didn't come for Joseph. That the chariots came for Elisha, but they might not come for you? Of course not. We know because we know the rest of Joseph's story. That because he was sold into slavery, he went on to become a powerful man in Egypt who used his position to save his family's life and even deliver a nation. If Joseph's prayers had been answered immediately, he and his entire family would have died in a famine. But the Lord knew what he was doing. And so it is the same in our own lives, that our own life stories are to be told. That you may not understand why certain things are working out the way they are just now, but that you will look back and say that God worked all things together for good. Our God knows what he's doing. We trust him in trouble. God looks after his children. Let's dive in again, though, to the text and see our, our, our second key theme, because we see, um, picking up in verse 18, that we're still in Dothan at this point, and the armies of Syria and heaven are facing each other, and we're, we're ready for battle to commence, and the Syrians start to make their way toward Elisha, and we know that there's going to be only one winner in this fight. But then Elisha prays, verse 18, please strike this people with blindness. And instead of the anticipated bloodbath, we get temporary blindness. Now, the term here is an unusual term, a rare term, and it likely doesn't mean the complete absence of sight as much as it means some sort of visual confusion. That helps us understand verse 19, where, first of all, Elisha lies to the Syrians. He says, you've got the wrong guy, you're in the wrong place, follow me and I'll take you where you need to go. Don't get too hung up on this lie. In warfare, it's okay to fake left, go right. Okay, we don't have overly sensitive consciences to these issues. And we believe that this is shrewd and wise rather than sinful. And the Syrian site is confused enough that they don't recognize where they are and they don't recognize Elisha, but not so confused that they're unable to follow him on this 10-mile journey to Samaria, which is the capital of Israel. Upon arriving in Samaria, verse 20 Elisha prays his third prayer, and the Syrian sight is restored. And imagine the horror as they come to and realize that having surrounded their enemy, they themselves are now surrounded by the enemy. Verse 21, the king of Israel can barely contain himself. Shall I strike him down? Shall I strike him down? He's giddy with excitement at the opportunity the Lord has given them here. But verse 22, again. Elisha intervenes, and instead of this bloodbath, we get a banquet. Verse 23, great feast is laid out for the Syrian army. They all eat and drink and have their fill before returning home satisfied. I love the way the passage ends. It says, and the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. I bet they didn't, right? (laughs) What's the point here? God looks after his children. 
but God also looks after his enemies. God looks after his children, but God also looks after his enemies. He could have slaughtered them in Dothan. He could have slaughtered them in Samaria, but instead of a bloodbath, we get temporary blindness and then a banquet. God prefers grace. Two quick applications to our own lives. First of all, God looks after his enemies, and this, for me and for you, is the gospel. Those words of Romans 5 that you'll be familiar with if you've been around the church, that God shows his love for us in this. What? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 10, while we were what? Enemies. We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. The gospel says that we're all enemies with God. Why? Because of our sin. Our sin puts us at enmity with him. The way in which we have chosen to rebel against his lordship over our lives, preferring to live according to our own preferences, our own desires, our own kingdoms, instead of his good and perfect plan for our flourishing. We're all at war with God, deserving to be punished. And the gospel says that instead of a bloodbath, we get a banquet. Instead of a bloodbath, we get a banquet. Why? Because on the cross, God did not deploy his heavenly armies. They stood by as Christ took the punishment that our sin deserves. So he takes our punishment and gives us blessing, gives us a seat at his table so that we, once his enemies, are now seated at his table. Has the gospel opened your eyes to this reality? Have you seen the good news and the fact that God looks after his enemies. Have you tasted that? I pray that you will. Second and and final application for us is, yeah, God looks after his enemies. That's good news for us because it's the gospel. But because God looks after his enemies and because we have been blessed in that way, we should go and do likewise. We should also look after our enemies. Now you might think, I'm not sure I have any enemies, but we all have enemies to one degree or another. Sometimes it's your spouse who you're angry with for being thoughtless or worse. Sometimes it's that child that you're ready to throttle for their disobedience. Sometimes it's that roommate who drives you crazy, that colleague who shoots down your ideas. Sometimes just a culture at large where you hear voices and perspectives that are so different to your own worldview and to your own agenda. And a mark of the Christian, one of the ways in which you know you you have tasted grace, the mark of a Christian is to be disarmingly loving to those with whom we disagree. That should characterize us as a people of God. Now, it's not that we lose all conviction or that we lose sight of the difference between right and wrong. Of of course not. But it's to say, as Paul said, that we are to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. That we treat our enemies in the same way that God treated us when we were his. This changes our attitude, our tone, our approach, our speech should be winsomely different. In this town, especially, Christians should be known uh, for communicating with, with, a, uh, with, a, with a warmth and a grace and a compassion that is so different to the vitriol that we hear in the world around. It doesn't just change our attitudes, it changes our actions. Our, our thoughtfulness, our generosity, our sacrifice should set us apart. We should be 
known for being kind to those who oppose us. I wonder this morning, who are your enemies? And how can you set a banquet before them? This week, what could you do to feed them in that way? Joseph, Elisha, Elisha's servant, the Syrian army, Tom Skinner, they all experienced that God looks after his children and that God looks after his enemies. Grace is here. I pray we'll have the eyes to see. Let's do that together just now.